It's the big day, the day when you have an important message that you will deliver in person. That could be in the boardroom or a break room, at a conference or off the job in your community. There are many ways things could go wrong, but if it all goes well, then your big ideas will hit the mark. So how can you make sure things go well? Today, we speak with Tim Pollard, author of Mastering the Moment, Perfecting the Skills and Processes of Exceptional Presentation Delivery on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help business professionals, association members, and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. That means improvements in your revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. I do that through consulting, professional speaking, and advisory work. When you visit my website, jimcard.com, you'll find examples of speaking topics, as well as testimonials and recommendations from clients across a number of businesses and industries. You'll also find a number of free resources covering the three foundational components to help you manage your message. First, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. My new book is available from Career Press. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, the audio version on Audible, Apple, all the places where you can find good business books. You can also find a sample on my website as well, as well as my direct email and phone number. Love to speak with you. We bring all of this together for you because, simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. Our guest today is a return visitor to the Manager Message podcast. Tim Pollard joined us for episode 14 to speak about the fundamentals of presentation design and why most business-to-business -business sellers are much more confident about the solutions they sell than about the messaging behind their offerings. At that time, we spoke about ideas from his book, The Compelling Communicator, Mastering the Art and Science of Exceptional Presentation Design. Well, Tim has a brand new book titled Mastering the Moment, Perfecting the Skills and Processes of Exceptional Presentation Delivery. I've been going through Tim's new book, and I can report it is also excellent. It's practical, helpful, and it pulls no punches. Tim's guidance is a product of his long career in sales, marketing, and consulting. He spent years in sales and marketing for companies such as Unilever, Barclays Bank, and the Corporate Executive Board. Now, he is the founder and CEO of Aradium, a consulting and training company that works with clients for executive sales and donor messaging. Tim is a popular speaker and a regular columnist for Forbes and Entrepreneur. Tim and his wife, Ruth, now live in Montana, which you might not guess from his accent if you haven't heard him before. He is passionate about his family, his fly fishing, and his church. Tim Pollard, welcome back to the Manager Message podcast. Hi, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you very much. This is a treat, and I think that your book has landed at an opportune time, and you address 
some chronic frustrations and some chronic opportunities that business people, all of our message manager listeners are dealing with on a regular basis. I thought I might begin with reflecting a story, something that recently happened to me. I went to a wedding. A friend's son was the happy groom, and it was, Tim, that rather familiar scene at the reception. The maid of honor and the best man were both offering speeches. Well, both began by saying that they were nervous and they apologized and they didn't consider themselves as being any good at speaking in public. You mentioned that mastering the moment, the focus of this new book, uh, while primarily about business presentations, isn't exclusively so, correct? You know, that's right. It's interesting, though, that uh, couple or pair at that wedding, they just reflect a fascinating reality, which is in every one of us talks from the age of two onwards. I mean, we all understand in theory, at least how to communicate. And yet the overwhelming majority of people really, really struggle when they get into any kind of more formal setting. And and trust me, you know, delivering a speech to semi-drunk people at a wedding ought to be pretty non, you know, non-intimidating. And yet even in settings as easy as that, people just struggle tremendously when they get into those moments. It, it really is an odd gap that we naturally communicate all day, every day, you know, 60,000 words a day or whatever it is typically. And yet we just don't seem to be able to get our act together when we're in any formal environment. So yeah, the books are both and, and all of our consulting, are, they're primarily about that organizational or business context. I think those are the settings where a greater amount is at stake. I mean, if you flub a wedding speech, it's <laughs> It's bad. It's not necessarily catastrophic, although it can be. Right. But it's when you're in front of that client you've waited six months to get a meeting with and you get one swing at one pitch. When you get that wrong, the consequences are altogether more dire. So you can apply, I think, the principles we're teaching here in any setting, but I think the organizational setting is probably the more important. Sure. Tim, I really uh, appreciated the clarity that you used to begin this latest book and really set the stage for the reader. Message manager listeners, check out, this is the very first sentence in the introduction, quote, this is a book about exceptional communication, specifically what happens on the big day of your presentation, end quote. Then Tim sets out a model for mastering the moment. It has three components, how you prepare, what you do, and who you are. So, Tim, and I will preview for our listeners that the who you are piece is really fundamental. You build toward that in the book and don't have that at the beginning, but uh, there's a progression there. But let's reverse engineer just a bit. So let's say for our listeners who have these regular times where they will be presenting in some different scenario, different forum, what should be happening on the day you're speaking at the wedding reception or to a prospect or to the board or to some other audience that's important to you? So I think I think you've got to back up and say there are two fundamental and quite distinct disciplines in view here. And most people don't even really understand this or they conflate the two. So the first discipline is the discipline of message design. And if you get that wrong, it doesn't matter how good what you do on the day is. You're not going to redeem catastrophically bad message architecture. You could be the most witty, sparkling, effervescent, nerve-free person, but if you get up there with 45 dense PowerPoint slides that you walk through, 
which have no discernible sequence. They're not anchored in an audience or a customer problem. There's no redemption for that. So there is a reason why this was book two of a, a, a two-part series. So the first big discipline is getting that architecture right. And that's what the first book was was really getting us to. But then it does leave this interesting unfilled void, which is, so what does happen on the day? If you've got a great message designed, are you automatically guaranteed success? And the answer is no. There's actually a concept I just, it's a simple thing I developed in the book called the delivery dilemma, but it's it's amazing. From the most mundane to, you know, actually rather more interesting ideas, there are a tremendous number of things that can go wrong on the day. I mean, just the mundane one, right? You walk in, to the venue. You don't get in early enough to change anything. And the seating and layout are horrible. People can't see the screen. The lighting's directly behind you. And it's 78 degrees. It doesn't matter how good anything else is. You've lost. You And, and those are very simple, basic, mechanical things like making sure the temperature is a temperature at which people learn rather than a temperature at which they go comatose. But then it, it, it spans a much wider remit than simply the kind of the venue and the physical mechanics. The other things, other things start to come into view like this, the, the mechanics of speaking, the, the maintenance of a, of, a, of a high energy level, the understanding how, when to use and perhaps not to use humor. And then as you were hinting, I, I think there's kind of even a loftier level of this of kind of personally you're going to portray yourself as being, how do you develop and cultivate a persona that people find credible and appealing and attractive and, and perhaps an important word, trustworthy. So when you do make recommendations, people are more inclined to go with them. So it, it's interesting. You've got this bifurcation. You have an absolute necessity to, to design great messaging. But then there's a tremendous number of things that can go wrong on game day. And if you if you know how to deal with those and, and see this beautiful marriage of exceptional design with exceptional delivery – that's when you really see magic happen. That's when real success as a communicator will happen. We'll spend some time in our conversation today talking about some of those elements about the venue and and uh, things you say and how, how to connect with your audience and how to <laughs> take care of things when they maybe aren't set up the way that you expected or things seem to be going uh, a little bit sideways. But even before that, Tim, I suspect you see some very common bad habits. Uh, now, recall when we were speaking about your previous book, you explained how we get ourselves into a rut about how we, I think you put it, we do what makes sense to us. And so when it comes to both the design and the delivery of this important presentation, this important message, what is it that you find that a lot of business professionals and leaders have to get rid of, or at least be aware of a habit that they need to, to be able to get around in the first place? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I think in all areas of life, we do form habits. We tend to do things the same way, and that's because our brains are programmed to program things into our long-term memory. And I think I think presentations work that way. I mean, the greatest habit any communicator has to break is is just kicking off design by opening up PowerPoint. PowerPoint's merely a tool for the carrying of visuals. It's nothing to do with any of the important questions of design. You can't design a building by laying bricks and you can't design a presentation by building slides. So on the design side, if I was going to pick one for each on the design side, I'd say the single most important discipline is to throw PowerPoint out 
and to sit down with a piece of paper and start asking some of those pivotal questions which are about why what is my audience problem that i'm about to solve what are the big ideas that i want them to land and to be able to represent or or retell in other words do some actual thinking before you start crafting the the physical artifacts be those slides or handouts and stuff like that that's a huge one if you can break that habit of just starting to throw slides together before you've done any thinking that would be huge i think the big habit that has to be broken on delivery i mean i don't want to be i'll be careful how i word this i mean i think an an appropriate word would be purely laziness which is you know my presentation's coming up and if even if it's a pretty important one people just tend to kind of glance through their slides yeah like i've got this they're not doing any real rehearsal they show up pretty close to the time the meeting starts. They're not really thinking about the way the venue can either really help them or completely derail them. They haven't planned how they're going to deal with a disruptive audience or an audience member. They may not even have thought through things like what is the the emotional makeup of the room, what attitudes, perceptions, persona has the audience got. That's a hugely important topic. And they haven't really thought through or perhaps got to the point where They've cultivated that extraordinary, crisp, rich, heightened, muscular language, which is going to be so important, play such an important part in them getting their argument across and also communicating a strong persona. But they just stand up and just talk and language in those settings tends to default to a really ugly, lowest common denominator. All of those little illustrations I gave there, I think, fall under the umbrella of I think laziness is probably a harsh term. I think complacency is probably a better term. The idea that oh, this is going to be fine. I know what I'm talking about. I'm an expert. And therefore, I don't really have to overmanage all those other details. That's a chronic mistake. Great communicators never make that mistake. Whether it's a Steve Jobs or a Winston Churchill, they were absolutely obsessive over not just getting up and just kind of hoping it all worked out on the night. So I think... The big habit to break on the design side is designing before thinking, and the big habit to break on delivery side is um, complacency, which needs to become much more intentionality. And let's take both of those. Uh, I had circled or somehow marked in your book your use of the term muscular language, which I think that term is a great example of using muscular language. <laughs> it it sticks, sticks in the brain, and it, there's a, a very easy inference to make from that. So let's let's begin with that on the presentation side. As you're getting, you have your ideas. You you're, you've thought through, or should have thought through, with your audience how you can best serve them, what the type of reaction and outcome you want in the moment, as well as afterward. Right? You you don't want a message that just kind of disintegrates after you're off the stage or out of the venue. So uh, you make some points about word selection in the book. So maybe take that a bit. When you say muscular language, what are the kinds of things that you're speaking about, Tim? Sure. So I think the best way to answer is to back up a little bit. We, we understand both from experience and from good um, neuroscientific research that language acts on people in a really interesting way. I mean, at one level, language is just mundane, right? It's like, pass the salt, Fergus, and he passes the salt. It's a simple, you know, translation of thought into action or, you know, getting an idea from my brain into your brain. And that's language most of the time. But there are certain times where language itself has that that sort of power to elevate and to create an idea or transmit an idea that is somehow 
loftier, more imaginative, more powerful, more compelling. There's very little research on this, but there's an incredibly interesting study, and I mention it in the book. Uh, it's way old now, 1974, but it was done by Duke University Law School. And what they did is they took a bunch of witness testimony and they analyzed that witness testimony for two things. One was what kind of language those witnesses had used. And then they worked with the jurors to establish what the jurors had felt about that testimony. And the findings were just shocking. What they basically concluded is jurors could use, uh, witnesses could use one of two types of language. And they basically kind of called it weak language and strong language. Uh, or pow- actually, what they actually said was powerless speech and powerful speech. What they found is when a, a witness used powerless speech, there were five ways in which the jury downgraded that testimony. And they were the areas of whether it was they were convincing, believable, competent, intelligent, and trustworthy. That's remarkable when you think about it, because imagine two witnesses gave essentially the same testimony, but one just happened to use more powerless speech and another used more powerful speech. The credibility, the believability, the convincingness, if you like, of the language was being judged by the jurors and just based on the language alone, which is I mean, terrifying if you imagine it. If you ever have to have a witness backing you up in court, the language they use is going to make is going to make a big difference. Now, powerless language was really interesting. So they dug into what that was. It was things like the presence of a lot of hedge phrases, so like and you know and kinda and sorta, hesitation forms, a lot of ums and ahs and well, you know, the old question intonation where you go up at the end of every sentence. uh, You know that that's was part of that weak form. And then the other key thing in powerless speech is what they called weak intensifiers. So using words like very, yeah, it was very scary. It was very difficult. And so what we know is that weak language tends to cause audiences to form troubling value judgments about the person using that language, things like intelligence and trustworthiness. So that's that's a pretty big deal. So what you want to do as a communicator is avoid those weak forms of language. And, and what I develop in the book is a basic structure of how to think about this. If you think about a word, all words exist on a two-by-two two matrix along two dimensions. So is that word actually generally understood, yes or no? And is that word in, in uh, generally greater or lesser use in everyday life? Is it more or less commonly used? If you think about language which is well understood but very commonly used, there's nothing wrong with that, but it is not muscular. It's not doing much for you in terms of helping people form you know, judgments about you that are positive and that you want. So a good example of a word that's really commonly used and really well understood would be very. You know, So we've looked at our performance and there's a very big gap between what we got and what we wanted. Now, there's nothing wrong with that word. It'll be understood. But audience will tend to judge you for it and in a negative way. What muscular language is, is it's staying within terms that are generally understood. Once you get beyond what people understand, you've got real problems. Stay within language that's generally understood, but seek to use words that are less commonly used. In other words, you know, take a weak word like get. Stronger words would be acquire, obtain secure, accumulate, or, oh, we're going to decide this. 
better would be we have determined this, we have resolved this, we have settled this. We'll go back to my other example. Instead of having, you know, a very wide gap, which is very weak, you know, we've noticed a troublingly wide gap, an alarmingly wide gap, an unexpectedly wide gap. When you develop more muscular language, which is essentially just developing a more robust vocabulary, you are communicating things like intelligence, credibility, and trustworthiness in a very kind of implicit way. And it will benefit you tremendously. Audiences tend to sink to a bland, unimaginative pedestrian level of language, but they tend to rise up to a more heightened and and muscular language. And the second benefit of doing this is enormous. You're able to develop far more nuance in your language and therefore more precision. So, for example, if I say to you, oh, there's kind of a, a very wide gap, like you don't really know what to make of that. It doesn't really mean anything. But if I said, you know, Jim, we saw an alarmingly wide gap. That really communicates something, which is it's a gap and we need to worry about it. Or an unexpectedly wide gap, which is, man, we've got this gap and we really didn't see it coming. I believe that if you cultivate this muscularity in language, it has a dramatic impact on your effectiveness because it, it, people begin to form associations of your intelligence, credibility, trustworthiness, believability. And that's unbelievably important. I I think I have a fairly broad vocabulary, probably a little greater than the average. And I have, I think, tremendous personal experience. I bet you do as well, actually, Jim, of when you use language in a little bit more of an expansive and imaginative way, you see a very valuable payback from that. So if I was looking at things I would really advise people to do, it would be to cultivate that, that greater level of muscularity in their language. Those are excellent examples, Tim. And I want to, before we go on and start talking about areas of the physical environment for your presentation and what to do in certain scenarios, I would like to underscore something that you said, a couple of things just now. You were talking about the negative impact the credibility undercutting impact of using a lot of qualifiers of what has been called uh, scientifically high rising terminal. I call up speaking. Some people call it up talking. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. you're going to make a declaration, but it comes off sounding like a question. And that has become unfortunately widespread and not just among younger professionals and not just in certain areas of the world or areas of the US. It's gone into a, a number of different areas. And I, in my book, uh, bring out some evidence that it does seem uh, to under undermine one's credibility. And there are a lot of hiring managers and other surveys of managers that say it makes you sound unsure. And I've had some people who have who may have had some of that, or they'll push back a bit and say, Jim, I'm just trying to be inclusive. It's, it's, a, it's a language that invites people to jump in. Well, I don't doubt the intention or the motivation. I can just tell you that most people who are evaluating the content of what you have to say will get thrown off by the fact that you're not saying it in a very, in a fashion where you sound comfortable in what you're saying. So this does have real effects. Yeah, I think you're really onto something here. I think it's two important things that flow out of what you just said. I use this term in a slightly different context, but it applies here, but I use it elsewhere in the book. And I think this is a really interesting maxim. And I say this, I really want you to ponder what I'm saying. If you seek the audience's approval, you will lose the audience's respect. And what I mean by that is when speakers are 
very clearly connoting insecurity or constantly looking for approval and that kind of up talk of, of kind of phrasing as a question. So, so I hope you agree with this. What they're implicitly doing is kind of seeking the audience's affirmation of what they're saying. It's a little bit like, you know, can I get an amen? You know, will you please affirm me? And I think what that does is it deeply undermines the audience's respect because actually, now we're going to a different part of the book, one of the things audiences really want speakers to do is to display an appropriate level of authority. If I believe this, let me say it and state it in a way that's muscular and let me actually stand behind it. You know, if I'm going to make a recommendation to a group, say, you know, we have studied, you know, these three different options, while two of them have merit, in our view, they are clearly not the right way to go. You need to go with option three. Audiences really respect that. They want people to, in some ways, take a stand, to stand their ground. And the, I didn't necessarily in the book connect this to kind of to the up talk or the, the rising conclusion. But the moment you seem unsure or that you're seeking approval, you're actually undermining a very foundational principle, which is audiences want speakers to show a level of authority. Hence my thought, when you seek the audience's approval, you will lose the audience's respect. Now, there are lots of different ways of doing that. But this sort of communicated weakness that comes across, especially when you're kind of seeking affirmation from the audience, is very, very damaging. Because it does suggest you're not confident, you don't really believe, you, you need the, the affirmation of the audience. And audiences don't like that. That is not something they respect. I think, Tim, to a large extent, it comes down to your belief that you have something very important to offer your audience, whether it be as a professional speaker with a room full of people, or you're giving a quarterly business review, or pitching your idea internally for some initiative. Mm -hmm. People will look to the way that you express it as a sense of you know what you're talking about, but it's not really about you. As if you think that your ideas, your recommendations really have merit, that needs to be, uh, you need to organize the design of your message and the tactics of it in a way so that there's the best chance of that landing and people acting upon it. So I think it's, it's based in a core belief that you know something that's valuable, you have a perspective, an experience that others ought to know about because it's good for them, not just that it's good for you, right? Absolutely. Uh, in the book, as you recall towards the back, I talk about persona and what is the type of persona you should be seeking to cultivate. And what's interesting is, is you have a lot of options for the type of style you adopt and the persona you, you, you portray even within the, the important overarching umbrella of being yourself. You're not trying to be somebody that you're not, but within being yourself, there are certain attributes that you can cultivate. And I think I talk about, there are three, by the way, we did a large test to look at, we looked at, at hundreds of speakers and we looked at those that really were stylistically strong, where you really felt drawn to them. They were credible, believable, enjoyable. And what we did is we looked at 16 variables of style and we sought to understand, you know, was that variable of style driving that? And it was really interesting because what we found was things like eye contact and body language were totally irrelevant. You could have somebody with a lot of eye contact and body language who had a very unappealing persona, and you had equally people who made very little eye contact and had very still, quiet body language who had a tremendously effective persona. So we knocked out a lot of the stuff 
that doesn't matter. And curiously, that a lot of that stuff is still the subject of a bunch of training, which is ridiculous. But what we found was three attributes of style that really correlated with demonstrable stylistic effectiveness. And if you're interested, the three were, I mean, I'll just give you the, 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 the cliff notes of it. One, gracious authority, which is really the one I was kind of talking about, which is be in control of the event. You know, uh, take authority over the room. If two people are talking and they're distracting the room, like, excuse me, guys, if you don't mind, let's perhaps take that offline or at the break because I think it's a little distracting for the room. Audiences just love it when they know that a speaker is in control. If that speaker is excessively weak, it's a huge problem, or excessively strong, dictatorial, like, guys, shut up. That's not okay. So the midpoint, like gracious authority. The second really powerful aspect of style is is what I call humble directiveness. And that's the one where we're saying, you know, be willing to tell people what you think. Take a stand. Don't cave. That's the one where you get that little connection to the actual intonation in voice. But it's really more than just intonation in voice. It's really about being willing to make a recommendation, saying, look, based on the analysis, this is what I think you should do. And again, audiences respect that tremendously for a different reason. People are busy. It's a big thing to ask people to draw their own conclusions from materials. So your job as a speaker is to draw the conclusions, tell them what you think. Based on this, I think we should do option three, not option one and one or two. Again, you want to avoid the extremes. If you're too weak and you make no recommendations, forcing the audience to do it. So I call that the, you know, the humble scribe. That's completely unhelpful. Like, I'm, I'm too busy to figure this out. You tell me what you think it means. If you're too strong and dictatorial, you know, you have to do this. You have no choice but to do this. Jim, you have to buy my solution. Totally unacceptable because you're, you're pressurizing people. What you want is that humble directiveness, which basically means make recommendations, take a stand, be willing to stand for something, but recognize that the audience has the inherent right and ability to go a different way. And if they do, then that's totally okay. That's the right they have. And then the third one, and there's, I think, a really interesting example of this from current recent political history, is what I call objective warmth. And what that's all about is the balance of sort of rational objectivity, which you bring alongside the warmth of personal humanity. If you get somebody who is entirely rationally objective, but they let you see nothing of their inner humanity, we know that that's a problematic style because it leads to huge issues of trust. I'm not making a political point here. Let me be very clear. But that was observably true with Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was widely regarded as a communicator who had problems. And one of the reasons was there was such a, in a sense, a coldness there that you never saw was there a real human being underneath, a sense that if there is a human being underneath there, I'm not seeing it. And that was known. I mean, many many commentators, not myself, observe this, that that led to real issues of trust. But if you go the other way, it's all pure, raw emotion, wearing your heart on your sleeve, crying at every moment. That's very, very uncomfortable for people. So that the third great variable of style you want to pursue is what I call objective warmth. You don't abandon reason, rationality, left brain, objective argument, but be willing to reveal that there's an actual human being underneath it's actually interesting. One of our clients, a very large it's a Fortune 10 company, has actually just asked for that section of the book to be turned into a live training for all the senior women 
at the company. They think it'll be relevant for all leadership, but they particularly wanted that. And the reason they, they gave me is just a few days ago was fascinating. They said, it's a fairly male dominated company. And they said, when, when women are promoted into senior roles, a lot of them are struggling right now to develop that strong, uh, what's called executive presence, if you like, or persona. And what they saw was this analysis and these three great attributes of gracious authority, humble directiveness, and objective warmth could be tremendously important in helping that cohort develop a, a more powerful executive presence. So it's a fascinating terrain. Most people don't really think about the persona they're using or the persona that they're trying to cultivate, but there's definitely stronger and weaker personas. And by the way, you know, before you say, well, hang on a minute, aren't we just who we are? The answer is no, we're, we're stylistic chameleons. You know, if I was going to do a retirement address for a fun friend, that's going to be buoyant, upbeat, totally different style than if I was speaking at a funeral of a child or a young man, woman, perhaps who died we naturally adopt a wide range of different styles. It just comes to us naturally. And all I'm saying here is that within the, the normal boundaries of being yourself, there are some very interesting attributes of style that you can deliberately choose to cultivate, and they will have a tremendous impact on your effectiveness. From what you just were talking about, Tim, uh, several things came to mind. And a couple of points I think we, we may want to bring up as well for our listeners before the conversation is up. It was interesting you used the example of Hillary Clinton. Now, I message managers and based in Arkansas and have actually <laughs> right. spent some time in person with both Bill and Hillary Clinton, as well as with Mike Huckabee, who was also a former governor of Arkansas and a right, right, political right. personality. And I, I bring in an example, and I've told a number of other people, probably not surprising to those of you outside of Arkansas, but most of the rest of the world doesn't know a whole lot about Arkansas, but they will have heard of the Clintons, maybe Mike Huckabee, they've heard of Walmart, a few things like that. But my contention is as communicators, Bill Clinton has much more in common with Mike Huckabee than even though they're in very different parts of the political spectrum than he does with Hillary Clinton. So, and, and, and part of it is the way people are wired, but I think a lot of it is what they, how they choose to adopt their style into different roles and into different scenarios. And I agree with you, Tim, it's not about trying to be false. There is that thing, well, if you're a chameleon, that means that you're not really rooted in anything. And the, the truth is that we all are kind of a mix and we make certain elements of ourselves more or less salient, more or less apparent in those different settings. So uh, I don't think that we're giving up ourselves in terms of trying to, to do the things that you the research shows you uh, as well. I don't think that should hold us back in any way. What you're trying to do, again, is to take what you know and what you believe and put it in a way that it's most helpful and it will be best received. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, I, I kick off that whole section of the book with these reflections on style, persona, and being yourself. And, and I really want to reaffirm that when I talk about being a chameleon, I'm not talking about in any way being deceptive or duplicitous in any way. What I'm saying is we naturally adopt different styles and personas based on setting. I did speak at the funeral of a very good friend of mine who died at a very untimely early age from cancer, a lovely guy. And even though my natural default style is kind of fun and upbeat and humorous, that was not 
the style on that day. And I didn't select that. It just naturally selects itself to anyone that has any reasonable, you know, self-awareness or just interpersonal skills. You just, it's just natural to us to do that. So in no way am I ever suggesting someone seeks to be someone other than who they are. But there's a lot more variety or, or there are more options within that overall idea of being yourself, I think, than, than we sometimes realize. The Clintons is a really interesting example, funnily enough, because that that third aspect of, of objective warmth. So if you're too far to the left, which is really the Hillary, that kind of cold, robotic, masked, veiled, those kinds of words that lead to trustworthiness issues. I'm not saying anything about her. I'm just saying that was her communication style, and she was why it was widely regarded that it led to trust issues. If you look at Bill, Bill was unusually for a politician more central on that axis, if you like, and even leaned a little bit more to the right. Bill would put his emotion on display. There were several fascinating accounts of where he'd been in town halls, and people were talking about the struggles they were having in their lives, and there was a sense he really genuinely did feel the pain they felt. And I don't think he was faking that with the, I feel that pain and would sometimes tear up and be emotional. And I think that objective warmth that he displayed was a tremendous part of why he was viewed as such an effective communicator. Now, curiously, not just pick on the the, the Clintons, Margaret Thatcher, legendary for being very Hillary Clinton-esque, absolutely cold, robotic if there was a real margaret the iron lady correct is that what they uh well said, yeah, you didn't know but here's an interesting story which british politician was surprisingly emotional regularly moved to tears when he spoke and it was churchill churchill was far more emotional and brought in that element of his humanity than almost any politician of that era. I mean, imagine the 1940s Britain, you know, stiff upper lip. You weren't going to reveal the human being underneath, but Churchill absolutely did. And it's, again, curious that speakers who were across history have really been regarded very highly. They very often brought in this idea of objective warmth. Now, in the book, I really describe what it, what it looks like. How do you stay away from the two extremes? But it's funny, there are lots of examples of speakers who've been at one or other end, and they were not warming and endearing to their audience. And then there are really interesting examples. I think Dr. Martin Luther King would be another one. When he talks about I have a dream and talks about little girls who will grow up in a world without hatred, again, he's taking a less objective and robotic treatment of his topic. And I think he's putting himself much more at the center of that objective warmth attribute. I think of all the three stylistic attributes, by the way, that we call this, by the way, I call this the, your degree of self-disclosure. And by the way, we haven't used the word, but it's the obvious word, is authenticity, that there's a real human being there. I do believe that is the most important of the three pillars of a powerful presence. Because people are evaluating you and not just your content. They're all, they're wrapped in there together. And so they, they want to know that you know what you're talking about. There's expertise, but they also want a sense of humanity and that you can relate to them. And that makes it easier for them to relate to you. Tim, again, your, your book is chock full of guidance and examples and things that you can really roll up your sleeves as a reader, as a professional on this. I did want to end there's one little bit of practical guidance. Again, 
there's a lot of practical guidance in the book. But one of the things that you mention in here, and I think it's it's worthy of bringing up, is that as presenters, and I see this from professional speakers all the way to corporate managers and subject matter experts and on down the line, is apologizing. And sometimes there are things worthy of apologizing for, but then I have heard presenters apologize because they have put unreadable tables of data on a slide, or we've got a lot to get through. I'm sorry we have so much material to get through, but I'll, I'll rush through it. Or, you know, I'm sorry I'm between you and the cocktail reception in 40 minutes, which means at that point. Uh, by the way, message managers, at the point that you mentioned the cocktail reception, that's all anyone will think about from that point forward. <laughs> so any quick guidance on, again, this is not to be arrogant, uh, but but to stop apologizing for the wrong things and reserve your apologies for maybe a few things. Yeah. I mean, this isn't the biggest piece of the book, but it's a really interesting little topic. I mean, I'm very passionate about communication about it being right. When I see a, spa- a speaker stand up and use an apology to seek absolution for an egregious error on their part, I think you have no right to do that. I owe my audience better than putting together 45 garbage slides of bullets and say, hey, I'm really sorry you're going to be drinking from the fire hose today. Think about what that person is doing. What they're really saying is, I didn't actually respect you enough to do this right. But by apologizing, I'm going to absolve myself of any real responsibility. And I I don't think I'm very diplomatic in the book in saying you have no right to do that. If you don't respect your audience enough to prepare properly, you have no right actually wasting their time. I think when you see that, I think there's a line in the book that says people's time is precious. And whatever the setting, speakers have an obligation to honor and respect the gift of time they're being given. Don't apologize for your miserably illegible slides. Respect your audience <laughs> enough to fix them. I just think people's time is precious. And if you if you don't respect that enough, then shame on you. And apology is not, A, it's inappropriate, and B, trust me, it ain't going to get you very much because people are going to be very aware that you, 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 of, of the, the error you've made. The other one you noted I just find funny is, is this really kind of is where you start about what bad habits do people get into. How many people do you know said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm the last one between you and lunch or you and dinner? Everyone does it. It's like, what a stupid thing to say. What you're essentially saying is, hey, this isn't really good and lunch is going to be really good. So lunch is really going to be better than what I have to say. Why would you do that? Why would you? I mean, A, everyone heard that line a million times and it wasn't funny the first time again if i read from the book is presenters do weird things when they don't think them through and this is one of them you need to believe that your material is extraordinary that they're going to benefit hugely from it and that compared to what they're serving for dinner lunch is you know it's going to be a bitter disappointment there's a line here i don't care if the kitchen is busy preparing roast ostrich in a kumquat sauce i'm not apologizing for my session as long as I don't run light, late, lunch will still be there when we're done. It's just one of these odd things. You know, people don't think, they've heard the line a million times, they think it's funny, and so they say it. But no, you've got to believe that what you're giving them is valuable. And you know what? Lunch will still be there afterwards. So it's a funny little point, just a couple of pages. But I think that's an emblematic of the book of just all these little ways we don't think straight about the topic. And then we just make stupid mistakes on the day. 
Such good stuff. Tim Pollard. The name of the book, again, is Mastering the Moment, Perfecting the Skills and Processes of Exceptional Presentation Delivery. We'll have a bunch of links in our uh, show description here. But Tim, could you review for our message manager listeners? And first of all, I will have a reminder. Tim's first appearance on the podcast was back in episode 14. You can refer to that for more on presentation design. But for this book, the previous books, what you're doing and the work at Oradium, could you give us some ways that we can keep up with you and get connected to your work? Sure. So there's no easier way than through the website at oratium.com. We are primarily a consulting firm. We do most of our work in sales messaging all of the principles we've discussed, both in the design and delivery conversations, apply very powerfully to commercial conversations. And I think there's wonderful hyperlinks and echoes to your book, Jim, which I loved. You've got an awful lot at stake in a commercial conversation. You can't afford to be making these kind of mistakes. You need to articulate a crisp, powerful value proposition. You need to design it so it's a crisp articulation of your value. And then you need to deliver in a way such that that value really comes across, that the, the argument is brought forth in a, a shining and glowing way. And all of those things we've talked about today, accompanied by a compelling style, muscular language, tremendously um, important. You didn't mention this, but it, I don't know if you remember seeing this. Chapter 11 of the book is titled Eye Contact and Body Language. And I'll read the entire chapter for you to close. Have some. Don't be weird. That's it. That's chapter and 11. That's all you need to know about that part. It is. Now there's a little postscript on some other stuff that there's a couple of pages worth saying. But the, the point is there are so many more important things to get right than that. So what we do is we, we really teach our clients how to design exceptional messaging, whether that's a sales presentation, a corporate presentation, a TED talk, and then how to execute on game day in, in an exceptional manner. And when you get that right, just really cool things flow from that. Tim Pollard, thank you again for graciously sharing your time, much better than even ostrich with kumquat sauce might have been, if I can imagine any of our listeners actually having that while they're listening to the podcast, <laughs> perhaps. But thank you for coming back onto the podcast, and, and hopefully we'll have you on again down the road. That would be fun. Jim, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. And thanks to you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about managing your message, then I'll refer you to my new book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. It's published by Career Press in audiobook form as well. You can find it wherever you buy and consume good business books. It's a simple, practical sequence you can use to bring more power, more scale, and more consistency to the everyday growth conversations in your business. Whether you're selling business to business, business to consumer, you're in a not-for-profit, you're part of an association, maybe multiple ways that you want to grow professionally and for your organization. And when your team or company or professional association is getting together, how many of those people really need some practical ways to grow without having to change the fundamentals of their business? Well, certainly most, maybe all of them. I offer programs ranging from keynote speeches to workshops to new manager programs and executive level messaging leadership programs. It won't surprise you that lately we are converting and dealing with more remote and virtual programs and sometimes a hybrid of looking forward to both in-person and virtual programs. Everything is tailored to your group 
and your growth plans. You can learn more at jimcar.com and includes contact information so that we can talk directly. My email is jim at jimcar.com. My direct phone number is also on the website. And thanks again for the five-star ratings, the reviews, the show ideas. It's helping a lot. We are growing quickly. Please keep it coming. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.